Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Monday, August 15th, 2022, and this is show number 901. Well, thank you so much for waiting for Steve and I to get back from our second vacation. And special thanks to Jill, Troy, Steve the husband, and Bart for creating all of the content for this week. Before we get stuck in, though, I wanted to tell you a little story of adventure. For the past month or so, I'd been noticing that my 14-inch M1 MacBook Pro wasn't lasting as long as it used to on battery than when I first got it. Now, they're supposed to have wicked long battery life, up to 11 hours of wireless web access, and even longer if you're just watching videos. I had trouble documenting exactly how long it was lasting, but it felt more like four or five hours. I spent some quality time on the phone call of sadness with my new friends Tyler and Solomon at Apple over the course of, the, of a couple of weeks. Now, the only thing we could find out about the battery that was definitive was that the battery health was down to 94% on a machine that's only nine months old. Steve and our good friend Pat Dengler also bought 14-inch MacBook Pros on day one, and their battery health was at 99%. Now, normally Apple won't give you the time of day about a battery until it's at 90% or below, but based on this being a, such a new machine, Solomon acquired approval for a repair. Now, I really wanted it with me on the trip to Iceland for reasons that I explained in a recent episode, and I thought I could probably survive a week in Hawaii without my laptop. I've actually never done that since I've owned a laptop, but it seemed to be the only option. At this point, I needed to figure out how to send it into Apple and yet not have Apple drop it off on my doorstep while I was gone to Hawaii. Apple was surprisingly difficult on this issue. My options were, I could have Apple mail me a box and I ship it, but then they would ship it back to the same address, my home address, including leaving it for thieves to enjoy. Another option would be to bring it into an Apple store, and it would be shipped back to me waiting safely while I was gone. This sounded grand, but they said I could not get an appointment at my local Apple store. I was like, well, wait a minute, I, I need an appointment just to hand it to them? Yep. The rep even called my store trying to get them to let me walk in, but they said no. Now, I'm lucky enough to be driving distance of three other Apple stores within driving distance of three other Apple stores, and they all had appointments before I was leaving, but in LA time, the distance that I would have to go to one of these Apple stores would be between two and three hours of driving. They're not that far away. They're just across town in the worst possible uh, situation. Okay, what about FedEx? Pat told me that she'd been able to take devices to FedEx and that they ship and receive both to FedEx. Nope, Apple Care said I didn't have that option. The bottom line was that I had to have the shipping from and shipping back to address the same. Finally, Pat stepped in as my hero. She suggested that I have the box shipped to her P.O. box. She would then ship it to Apple, and that would let Apple ship it back to her P.O. box where it would be safe. She came to my house, we boxed up my baby, and she shipped it off. I'm pretty sure she shipped it on Saturday morning and it arrived at Apple on Monday and by Wednesday, it was back in her hands. Now that speed has been my experience the last three or four times we've done this and it was much faster than the old days where we used to take it into the store. So I'm not sure this was a bad thing the way it worked out. It did go and come back very, very quickly. Then Pat, in another act of heroism, drove it down to my house and gave it to my trustworthy next door neighbor who has access to my house. Without Pat's help, this show probably wouldn't have come out today. The good news is that they replaced the battery and the top case of my Mac. 
Now, top case is kind of a weird name. It's the surface you see when you open your laptop, not the top, not the lid. So the top is when it's open. And that means it's the keyboard and the trackpad area and everything connected to it. Now, I'm not quite sure what was wrong with those parts, but I have a new keyboard, which is fun. The less fun part was that they wiped the drive and installed a fresh OS for testing. Now, I knew this was a possibility, so I had all of my data backed up locally on, a, on a, um, an SSD, and of course, also on Backblaze, because you don't just have one backup, right? Well, I considered doing a pave since Apple had done the nuke part of a nuke and pave for me, and you know I'm a huge fan of nuking and paving. On the way home, uh, I used my iPad to review my mind map of Doom of my procedure for nuke and paves. I made edits to update it with new apps that I use, and I removed old apps that I don't use. Even I can't normally cruft up an OS in just nine months to the point that it's worthy of a nuke and pave, but I was having some extreme spotlight problems. I'd worked with Solomon on this as well. The problem I was having was that Spotlight, Spotlight just kept re-indexing my drive over and over and over again. While it was re-indexing, it could find any app I asked for. But when it was completed with its re-indexing, it was only able to find non-Apple apps. All Apple apps were not launchable via Spotlight. How weird is that? Even before calling Apple Care, I did the trick of dragging my entire drive into the privacy tab of Spotlight, which tells it not to index, and then I dragged it back out, but that still didn't stop the constant re-indexing. Working with Solomon, we found some commands that you can do that actually will allow you to do a, a more robust way of telling it to re-index, but that didn't work either. Solomon and I did wonder whether this constant re-indexing of the drive was the contributor to my poor battery performance, but all of the tricks available to Solomon never stopped it from indexing. It would do it pretty much once a day it would start over. This was the main reason I thought it was a wise move to do a pave on this fresh install of macOS. But in the light of day this morning, which was the first day I got back from my trip, so I have one day to put the show together, I lost my nerve and I used migration assistance for apps and settings and my data. I don't think I've ever done it this way before, and I see why people like it so much. It is so easy. Now, the biggest surprise of migration assistance for me was how it treated Apple Photos. I've mentioned at least 300 times on the podcast before that I have a massive photos library with 90,813 images. That's not even counting videos, and it takes up 857 gigabytes of data. When I do a nuke and pave, I always have to have photos download originals from the cloud, which takes about three days. Maybe a little more than three days these days. Anyway, I've been doing that way for the past five years or so on the advice of an Apple support person. The original reason for this strategy was that if I drag over my photos library from my backup drive, photos will check every single one of those 90,000 images to see if it matches what's on iCloud. So it's going to go, okay, here's a picture of uh, your granddaughter. Do you have that one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Got the original. Is this one? You got it? Got it. Okay, original. Up and back and up and back and up and back. That process, the last time I ran it, took three and a half weeks. And during that three and a half weeks, no new images come into my Mac. So I normally don't move the photos library over. I simply say, uh, okay, go fetch them. And it takes that three and a half days. So I expected that after running Migration Assistant on my Mac, I would have to delete the photos library that just got moved over there and then tell it to download from iCloud from scratch as I've done before. But to my great surprise and delight, photos had all of my photos. It didn't have to check them at all. It was a miracle. 
I'm so happy about this. I cannot explain why it worked, but now I know why no one else seems to be complaining about this problem that I have. I know my photos library is big, but nobody ever mentions this. Now, I'll still have to worry about it the next time an Apple support person says, just log out and back into iCloud, because there be dragons. Now, it's not all roses on Migration Assistant. I was surprised to find that I'm having to redo all of the permissions for screen recording, full disk access, and accessibility. The other odd thing is that I appear to be missing a lot of menu bar icons. I use Bartender to manage my menu bar apps, separating them into three categories, always visible in the main menu bar, only visible in the secondary menu bar, and never visible. With this carefully curated strategy, my menu bar items reach just up to the notch in my MacBook Pro screen and no farther. But after the migration, I've got about an inch and a half of free space. I don't have any clue what's missing, and I am only figuring it out when I go to use something, and it's not there. It appears to me that it has to do with things having disappeared from startup items. Some apps are in startup items, but some are not. Stream Deck was one of those missing menu bar items. When I tried to launch Stream Deck, I discovered that it's a Rosetta 2 app, meaning it runs in emulation mode on Apple Silicon Macs. Now, it's not a big deal to run something on Ro under Rosetta, but it's kind of disappointing to me that with Apple Silicon Macs coming up on two years old, Elgato still don't have a native app. Another app that wasn't in my login items was CleanShot X. I think that one may have dropped out in migration because I'm using it as part of setup. Again, not a big deal to add it, but when you take as many screenshots as I do, it's weird when the tool doesn't respond when triggered. I also noticed that my Touch ID settings weren't migrated, which makes complete sense from a security perspective. In that same vein, the clean install of macOS also set my security policy and recovery to the highest level. I keep it down a notch to reduce security, which allows user management of kernel extensions from identified developers. I don't intentionally run any kernel extensions, but Rogue Amoeba's software uh, such as Audio Hijack, requires this level of security, even though it is definitely not a kernel extension. Again, this makes perfect sense that I would have to redo this setting, but it was still a smidge of work and a couple of reboots that I wasn't expecting. To close out this topic, I did find that on this particular vacation to Hawaii, I didn't miss my laptop at all. It probably won't change my future behavior, I'll be taking it with me everywhere, but traveling with four kids and our four very young grandchildren made this a trip where I was never sitting down with free quiet time. We were always on the run, going to the beach and other adventures, or we were cooking or we cleaning up or changing diapers or bottle feeding the baby or playing games or playing in the pool. It was a fantastic trip, but Steve and I are definitely looking forward to our homebody quiet lives for just a little while. A few years ago, when the SMR podcast host took over the NoSilicast while I was on vacation, Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News Show called it the crossover event of the summer. Since then, the SMR hosts Rod, Chris, and Rob have all been on DTNS. Then Tom had Bodie Grimm of the Kilowatt podcast on his show, and that allowed me to become friends with Bodie, and the crossovers just keep on coming. In this year's crossover event of the summer, Bodie Grimm takes over Chit Chat Across the Pond Light when he interviews two gentlemen from a company called Orange Charger. Founder Nicholas Johnson and product manager and strategist Joseph Nagel talk to Bodie about their vision to bring affordable and convenient electric vehicle charging to multi-unit properties like apartments and condominiums. It is a fascinating discussion of what people think they need and want versus what they actually need in a home charger in an apartment or condominium 
complex. They've actually lived what they're proposing and building out in uh, these multi-unit apartment buildings. And it's really cool. It's really, really interesting. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think after you listen to this, you're definitely going to want to subscribe to the Kilowatt Podcast with Bodie Grimm because he is awesome sauce. Hello, everyone. This is Jill from the North Woods. Being from the Midwest and being a simple Midwest girl who loves to camp, I find it difficult to watch people who love to glamp, which is like glamorous camping, or people who like RVs. I'm a tent camper, and I love the simple life. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I just reviewed some of the equipment I have when I go camping? In the past couple of years, I decided to really step up my game. I have a fantastic tent. I love this tent. But sometimes it's not always great to sleep on the ground in a tent. And then I started thinking during the whole pandemic, how can I really improve my camping? It is my retirement plan and what I plan to do a lot more of. So the first thing I purchased and I got this during the pandemic was a rooftop tent that goes on top of the roof of my car. Yep, I have a Honda Element and then this thing sits on top of a rack on top of the Element. And for the rooftop tent, I bought a RoofNest tent, which is a great company out of Colorado that I think thinks outside the box and has a lot of really good ideas when it comes to making roof tents. I got the model called the Sparrow Adventure, and it's a rectangle that's 4 by 8 and looks like a box, which is funny on top of my element, which also looks like a box. The nice thing about being in a rooftop tent is that it's a little bit warmer. You get a really fantastic breeze if it's summertime and it's hot, because you have four windows. Three of them act as doors, and the cross breeze is amazing. There's even awnings on the sides of the windows that will keep out rain if it's a particularly drizzly day. I had a pretty good rainstorm when I slept in the tent, and it kept all the rain out while having the windows open, and I could look out and just see the beautiful rainy day while I sat inside reading my books. The other nice thing is it can keep basically animals, trespassers, spiders, other things from getting inside your tent. I live in the midst of bear country, so having a little bit more protection from bears seemed like a good solution for me. I even found a campsite that someday I want to visit that has wild horses and buffalo that marches through the campground. I think I'd like to be in my rooftop tent while I watch them cross into the campsite. The tent itself is made of tough material. It has a hard shell top to it, and a telescoping ladder. And you might guess that ladder goes up about 10 feet where my tent is. And so you have to climb up and down from the tent. People were fascinated when I started taking it out camping. How do you get up there? And what do you have to do if you have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? And can we watch you while you pull the tent down? It has four arms that will take 120 pounds of pressure. And that means you have to put pressure to bring those arms down to pull the tent back up. It can be a bit disturbing. When I first got the tent, it took me, my neighbors, and their parents to help me get the tent down. But through some trial and error and straps, eventually I figured out how to do it all by myself. Which is good because I'm not going to bring all those people camping with me. 
I found my experience of camping in that tent amazing. And I really love this thing. It also makes my car super easy to pick out in a parking lot. But because the air can get a bit warm up there, I have a couple of Pullman fans that I can hang from the inside of the tent that will pull air in and push air out. And that just ensures that everything stays at a good temperature and humidity inside the tent. But to make sure I know what the situation is, I have the Govi hydrometer thermometer sensors inside both the car and the tent. And I can see what the temperature inside both of them is currently at and if it's getting too humid in there. I have seen that rooftop tent get to 147 degrees. It has a black plastic top on it. So it is going to get very warm up there. That's why it's important to make sure I keep it cool. Then I was thinking about what can I do while I'm inside the tent for power. At the time, I had the 2013 MacBook Pro, which needed a regular AC wall outlet. So I looked into the Omni Charger, which is a very large battery and has an AC wall adapter in it so that I could plug in pretty much anything into it and get nice power. It has so much backup power in it that I can pretty much charge everything in my tent, my phone, my lights. The tent itself has some interior lights in it, and so I can plug those lights into this device and keep the lights going. And again, working on my MacBook. So just being comforted that I have a very small device that has a ton of power in it, make sure that I can have all the fun in the tent that I'm looking to have. I also have a small table in there that acts as a laptop desk and even has room for an iPad and other devices. But when I'm ready to pack up for the night, I can make it flat like a table. And that's where I put my glasses, my drink, all the things that I'm not looking to have directly next to me when I'm sleeping, but it's nice to be on a little table. I also have a seat bag that allows me to carry all this material up and down the tent. I really don't want to leave anything expensive or valuable in the tent when I'm there or when I'm away. So this bag hangs at the top of the tent. All my fun gear goes into it. And then when I'm ready to come down in the morning, I can sling it on my back and walk down the ladder. It's also kind of nice if I decided to spend a night in a hotel. It also acts as a tech bag that I can just bring my gear with me. And because I do like cold weather camping, I have the Coleman Dunnock cold weather sleeping bag, which gets to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. But it's also very fluffy, which means that it gives a little bit more padding on the mattresses so that you make sure that even in the summer, it's nice and squishy and comfortable. Now, because I do like to camp in the cold weather, I have a little propane heater called the Camp Gear Chubby 2-in-1 Portable Propane Heater and Stove. And what's nice about this device is it can act as a cooking device. So in case I don't have a fire for the night, or maybe I just want some hot water in the morning for some coffee and oatmeal, it can do that very easily. But it also has another setting, which turns it into a small heater. People tell you that you can use this heater inside of a tent and you won't have anything bad happen, but I'm not really ready to try that at all. First of all, this particular model doesn't shut off automatically on tipping, which some other models do. But just the idea of having a propane heater inside of a tent makes me a little bit nervous. But for a little bit of heat and a little bit of cooking, that makes it perfect for me. 
I have this Camp Chef Sherpa camp table and organizer. What it is, is a smaller fabric container that has a hard shell top on it you can add and subtract to give yourself a little table. It has legs to make it taller, and on the inside, it has four very nice packs where you can put all your cooking gear, your pots and your pans and your plates and anything else you may need. So then when I'm ready to camp, the whole thing comes out, I can cook with it, I can eat on it, it acts as a little table, and then I fold it back up, take off the legs, and it all goes back into the car without much drama at all. I found this thing to be invaluable. And in fact, I like it so much, I just keep it in my car all the time to store all sorts of things. For the most part, and most of my cooking, I use a Coleman tripod with an adjustable grill. And it really goes over top of any type of campfire. It has an adjustable height grill, so I can get down close to the fire or bring it up a little bit more. But it's so handy That is really where I do about 95% of my cooking. And because I have that and other methods to cook, I have the Stanley stainless steel pots, pans, and plate kit. It has everything that you could need to really cook and eat with different size pots and pans and different plates and forks and all the things that you need. With it, I bought another pot that is a taller pot, which is great for cooking noodles or boiling that first cup of water in the morning for your coffee. It also comes with small bowls and a mug. The whole kit from Stanley Adventure really does it all. It's durable, and it's something that I'll probably just have forever. I really love how good this complete kit is. But then when it came down to when I'm eating or looking to cook, I always had one of the coolers that requires ice To be honest, I was never all that impressed. The ice eventually melts, even if you have a nice Yeti cooler, and you have to keep looking for ice everywhere you go. I decided I really wanted to go the direction of having an electric cooler that I can set and not worry about. And so what I bought after doing some research is from a company called Astro AI, and it has a 12-volt, so I can plug it into a battery, car refrigerator. It goes from minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit to 68 degrees. It's very nice how this whole thing works. I can plug it into my car when I'm driving to my campsite. keeps the food nice and cool. And then when I'm ready to get out, I can plug it into a battery and keep it cold that way. Now my food's not getting soggy, and I know that it's staying at a good temperature. But you might be asking yourself, What kind of structure do you have to have in place to have an electric cooler with you when you go camping? I tried to think of ways of going about it. First of all, I have the smallest Jackery battery, which I bought on a deal once, and it's great. It can charge up my phone and do some other things, but it has a very low wattage. And while I can use it on that cooler, it drains pretty fast. So I needed something much bigger. Now, of course, you can buy much larger jackeries that have a huge wattage output, but they get expensive fast. And I wanted to have a thing like this, but according to YouTube videos, you could build your own. Now, I'll tell you, the jackery batteries are well-made. All the components are inside the battery, so you don't need anything else. And that makes it really handy. When I decided to build my own, 
It's not going to be as adorable as a Jackery battery, but it's going to be a lot less expensive. So the first thing I did is I went out and did some research on buying a lithium battery. Now I see people try to use a car battery for this, but you have to be careful about acid batteries. They can catch on fire. They can do some very bad things. Lithium is a lot safer. It's also a lot more expensive. For about $490, I got a rather large lithium battery. There were some bigger ones out there, but I thought this one would suit my needs. The one I bought is from Ampere Time Life PO4 12-volt lithium battery. To go with the battery, I also have to have an inverter, which I used an Ampeak 1,000-watt inverter. The wattage gives you the limit of what kind of thing you can plug into it. Like a hair blower might be 700 or 900 watts. You could plug it into a 1,000-watt inverter. Some of the electrical pans, in case you decide you want to cook inside, also go that high. It has two outlets on it, and so I hook that up to the battery and then plug the cooler into that. It's what gives me the AC outlet. Then I also have an expert power 12-volt lithium charger. goes with the lithium battery. So when I'm near an outlet, I can plug it in and charge up that battery. But then I thought, I don't want to necessarily get an electric current campsite all the time. So I decided to go with some solar panels. And this company is called Top Solar. I don't really know them very well, but they seem to get decent reviews. And I bought two 100-watt solar panels for it, which means I also had to get a solar controller that makes sure that the energy doesn't back up into the solar panels and destroys them. And it also keeps tabs on things like the temperature of the battery and the charge level. So in order to hook those solar panels up, that device makes sure that everything stays nice and regular. I tested out those two 100-watt solar panels on the longest day of the year in full sun without obstruction. And it took about 12 hours to charge up that Jackery battery, which is a bit much. It's something that in my neck of the woods, isn't going to do a very good job of charging up a battery while I'm at a campsite. You can imagine it's going to be up north. There's going to be trees in the way. And again, in the Midwest, our sun is just not that strong. So while I think it could do some things to top off the battery, it's certainly not going to be able to be used as a sole power device. And when I tried the battery and the cooler combination, I found that I can get it to go for four solid days. So it just means that probably every five days, I'm going to have to get a campsite with electrical power. Then I got another solar panel, which is about 140 watts, that folds up. It's easier to carry, and I can use it to charge up the Jackery and the Omni battery pack anytime I need. So with that, I have some good options for solar if I go some other places than where I'm at right now. I also have a very portable solo stove called Titan, and it's very small, and you can put some sticks in it. It's engineered to let air in to get a very hot temperature from it, and so if I didn't have propane or if I didn't have a full fire, maybe it's raining outside, I could cook something on this little tiny fire pit. I happen to own the large version of the solo bonfire fire pit from my backyard, and I absolutely love it. It keeps the smoke down. 
and it makes things very hot. I can invite people over and we can roast marshmallows and brats, and it's just one of my favorite things. But this little portable Solo is nice because it also has an alcohol burner in it, so that if I need to cook over alcohol because maybe I can't find any sticks, I am in the middle of the desert or in the middle of winter and it's all snowy, I can also use alcohol to cook dinner with. And some other accessories I have are fireproof gloves and some retractable marshmallow sticks, which are great for hot dogs and marshmallows. So you might be wondering, gosh, what is it that you do when you go camping? Isn't camping really boring? Well, first of all, I have a nice screen tent in case the weather's not great or in case the mosquitoes are as large as airplanes. And I use the off lanterns to keep the mosquitoes away, which does a pretty good job. But sometimes you just have to be inside the screen tent. To make sure I have enough proper light, I use the Govi Camping Lanterns. It's a tech brand. They're like Hue. They make all these different light bulbs and smart devices. They also make the temperature sensors that I use to monitor my tent. They're waterproof. I can hang them on the side of my tent or carry them with me whenever I need to. I can control them either by switch or by using an app on my phone to change the brightness, the color, turn them on, check the battery levels. Now, the reason I bought this particular lamp is that it connects over Bluetooth, which means I don't need Wi-Fi. And you have to imagine that in the middle of the night, if I have to go to the bathroom, I'm up 10 feet and have to climb down a ladder. What I'm really looking to do is to turn on a light before I head down the ladder, maybe even a wet ladder. I really do love these, and they're just such a fantastic device. And there's some other things that I wish to do. I like to bird watch, and I have the Vortex 8x28 binoculars. And the reason I picked those is, first of all, it's a fantastic, internationally known brand of binoculars. But the 8x28s are so small, I can stuff them in a coat pocket and carry them with me when I go hiking. I really love these binoculars, and they're great for bird watching and other nature watching, too. I have a bike rack, which is the Hollywood Trail Rider 2-Bike Hitch Rack. And I can put my bike on it, and I love going biking when I go camping. A lot of the campsites in my neck of the woods have fantastic trails right near the campground, and so I enjoy bringing my bike. And I have a Salsa Via bike, which is fantastic for trails, and it's very useful for just riding everywhere. This bike rack also has carrier rack, so I can also put my equipment on it that I don't want in the car. I also love to read inside my tent with my Kindle. That's one of my favorite things. And I have a Koi watercolor kit in case I'm feeling inspired to paint. I'm pretty terrible at it, but I really enjoy doing it when I go camping. But here's what I'm really planning on doing when I go camping. I'm about to do a citizen science podcast with a good friend of mine where we're going to talk about birds and nature and all sorts of outdoor things. So I picked up two microphones. The first microphone is the Shure MV8 Plus, which is very portable, has fantastic sound, and I can hook it up to either my phone or my laptop to do some recording. But to go with it, I bought another microphone called the Pixel Professional Lavalier Microphone Omnidirectional Condenser Microphone. Now, you might wonder why I have a second microphone. And it's because when I read the reviews of this microphone, People said, it doesn't focus in on your voice. It picks up everything around you. It gets all the other noise that you don't want to have on a recording. 
And I thought, aha, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Because what I want to be able to do is go hiking or go through the woods and have a microphone that I can record nature sounds. And if it isn't filtering out for voice, then it's perfect for all the other noises that I'm trying to capture for my podcast. I have used the Pixel microphone for recording nature, and it's wonderful. But I haven't used the Shure MV88 Plus microphone yet, but I'm looking forward to on my next camping trip. And then the last thing I do is I sometimes do laundry because you run out of clothes, and I have the Scrubba portable wash bag. It's just basically a very thick bag that you stuff your clothes in, you put your laundry detergent in, and you just mush it around until your clothes are clean. Then you pour some fresh water in there and you rinse it. For safety, I always have a weather radio, a first aid kit, bear spray, because I do live in bear country, and a spare set of glasses. Because last time I went camping, I crushed my glasses and I cannot drive home without them. The other thing is, I also took wilderness first aid from Knowles. And my friend, she's a respiratory therapist. So between the two of us, we're in pretty good hands when it comes to any sort of injuries or problems we may have. So there you have it. A simple Midwest girl just trying to camp in a temp. Not like those glampers. Not like those fancy people in the RV. Just me and my outdoor nature. And I hope that all this camping gear will help me get to my goal of going on two to three week camping driving trips across America. I just really want to see the world and camp everywhere. I hope you enjoyed the camping overview of what I bring. And if you have any questions, as always, you can look me up at Allison's Slack channel or look on the blog post to leave a message. Again, this is Jill from the North Woods, and you can find me at jill at smallstepspod.com too if you want to email me directly. You know, I'm a huge fan of everything Jill does, and this was no exception. I love her explanation of how she doesn't do fancy camping and then goes through and tells us all the fancy camping stuff she does. Now, if you heard her talk about one or more things you think you might need, definitely check out her blog post, link in the show notes, as she has 24 links to the items that she described. Next up, let's hear a quick review from Troy Shimkus. The love affair I thought I wanted. I've been eyeing AirPods Max for some time now. I've never really been much of an audiophile, but I was certainly interested in what Apple could produce given how well I liked the AirPods and AirPods Pro. The idea of spatial audio was also intriguing, and so these super premium-priced headphones were ones I thought would be a great addition to my unnecessary collection of accessories. But alas, I will be returning these shortly after this review, as they just don't fit my needs well enough, and I can see that they would sit unused too often to keep. The first reason I waited so long to buy a pair was they had no mute button, and I mainly needed headphones for Zoom meetings for work. I currently use a pair of Bose SoundLink around-ear headphones, Actually, I have two of those since I like them so much. They don't have a mute button either, so the AirPods would have best provided a better quality mic and audio experience. But I do prefer over-ear headphones for work calls since they can be long, and wireless is a must since I'm also a wanderer as I'm on these meetings. So when I found a pair of these at Best Buy as an open box for $440, I thought I could at least give them a shot. I've been using them for over a weekend, and now the rest of this week while traveling, so from the airport to the hotel and back home, using them for meetings, TV, and such, I've gotten a pretty good sense of what they can do for me. 
Overall, the audio quality is great. I do enjoy using them for TV as the dialogue is much clearer and having the noise canceling on helps to be able to hear the dialogue and understand it for many of the shows. The spatial audio features are rather nifty, having the audio come from the same location as you move your head around or walk around the house, perhaps a bit disorienting at first, but a rather magical accomplishment by the engineers for sure. While the noise canceling came in handy for the airplane trip, I don't often find myself really wanting noise canceling in my daily life. After a week of use, I can say that while I certainly like them, they just don't hold enough value to warrant the price for my use case. For my needs, they are a bit bulky, not easy to travel with or use at a local coffee shop, whereas the Bose SoundLink are lighter and fold nicely into a full zipper case. These have a barely there kind of pseudo case, and you can tote them around by the headband, which is kind of awkward. I've also found that the ear cups on these are a little itchy with the texture they have, not at all like the smooth Bose ear cups I'm so most used to. So while I enjoy them for the week, and I can certainly see why people find them appealing, alas, they don't fit my needs and I'll be returning them. As a reference point, I have recorded this interview up to this point on the AirCats Max using GarageBand on my M1 Max MacBook Pro, just so you can get a nice sense of what the microphone would actually sound like. Well, thanks for that, Troy. It sure sounds like maybe this is not the device for you like you thought it was. The audio is okay, and maybe for a phone call it would be pretty good, but it does sound a little bit crunchy, so it's uh, for that much money, that's a little bit disappointing. I can see why you think you're probably going to send them back. Steve Sheridan just got a new toy, and you know that means he has to do a review, but I thought it'd be more fun to record the two of us talking about it rather than him doing a solo review. So welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Allison. It's good to be back on the NoSillaCast after all these months. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I have to say Steve Sheridan uh, so that people know exactly who you are, but... Uh, yeah. Husband Steve. Husband Steve. Sorry, that's what I should be calling you. That's your official title. Well, uh, you got a new toy. Uh, why don't you first just tell people what you got in a generic sense? Well, I got a pair of binoculars. And um, even though we've had a few pair, these are really cool. They're the Fujinon Techno Stabi 12 by 28 image stabilized binoculars. Stabi? Stabi. Is that what, really the title? That's a Fujinon, which I think is a, a division of Fuji, uh, calls them Techno Stabi. And I think that's their their name for any image stabilized binoculars that they make. When you first told me that, I thought that was like it, it got cut off in the Amazon name, you know, how they have those great big long giant names or something. But uh, the, the Techno Stabies. All right. We'll, yeah. we'll try to take it seriously. So, it's very uh, high tech. Yeah, exactly. So, talk first about uh, the binoculars you've had in the past. Yeah, so we've had, uh, both of us have had a couple pairs of binoculars in the past. We started with a very small, compact pair of binoculars that we took out on hikes and so forth. Very lightweight, very compact, but we noticed they had a, a pretty small field of view, and um, and they were just, they the optics weren't quite as good as I'd like to see in a pair of binoculars. They, so They we were decided, really nice and little, though. Oh, they were easy to pack. Super lightweight, you know, like a half a pound or I forget, but well under a pound and folded to a very small uh, volume. So we decided uh, after visiting a laboratory or an observatory, you and I uh, took a little stargazing trip a few years back with Bill and Diane. We were at this observatory and they sold field binoculars, which were full size, larger field of view, 
Um, I don't know if they were, I think they may have been slightly better optics, but they were large. They were heavy. They were bulky. And so yeah. they were not good at all for backpacking, hike, tri- hiking trips, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, I think those were made by Gordon. Uh, yeah. And they were, uh, they definitely were a lot better than what we had. They weren't very expensive. They were around 45 no. bucks, I think, but they were, uh, like you said, they were, they were too busy, to, too big to really carry around. I think they were, right. uh, and, and they didn't provide enough advantage to make you want to carry them. So basically right. you had binoculars that sat at home. They, they were good for back, backyard viewing, <laughs> or maybe if you were on a camping trip where you had a vehicle, like a, a motorhome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think we brought them with us when we went to Joshua Tree with yes. uh, Diana, Bill, and, and Ron and Lori. Yeah, and so, right. That, was, that was good because we did have a motorhome to carry them. Exactly. Uh, so that's great for viewing, let's say, galaxies, uh, even sometimes better than a telescope because they have a little wider field of view and you don't need that much magnification for nearby galaxies. And we did see a galaxy that yes, I hadn't we did. seen before. Which one was that? Do you remember? Um. It was either Andromeda or M82. I think it was Andromeda. Okay. Yeah. So that was cool. Maybe both. Yes. So that uh, was really, really nice. (laughs) But we don't always have a a motorhome to carry binoculars, right? So you went on the hunt for something better? Yeah. Especially since we were coming up on our Iceland trip, we knew there would be some great sites with birds and volcanic formations and geysers and things in the distance. So decided to get another pair of binoculars, but in the meantime, earlier, a friend of ours, Bill, had showed us his image-stabilized stable, image stabilized binoculars, neither of which our first two pair were, and that kind of sold me that our next pair needed to be image-stabilized. Especially since we were going to be on a boat. I'm sorry, right. ship. A ship, <laughs> correct. A moving, rocking ship. Now, not that much rocking, but enough that it would be harder to, to view distant objects you know, through binoculars. Right. So did uh, you had a set of criteria for these new binoculars, right? Yeah. So based on my experience with Bill's binoculars, image stabilization was number one on the list. We still needed that compact, lightweight design um, because we knew we'd be taking hikes with this and in in the future. We needed at least 10 times magnification, uh, reasonable battery life, because when you go to uh, image stabilization, that requires battery power. My cost goal was around $500, and I wanted waterproof or water-resistant binoculars. Right, right. So uh, I was in, inclined on the cost item. I kept looking at that number going, the last pair we paid $45 for, and now you're saying, okay, $500. Yeah, yeah. So I noted right away when I began my search here, my most recent search, that adding image stabilization really increases the cost of binoculars. <laughs> it does add a little bit to the weight and the, and the volume, maybe a little more the weight, uh, but it greatly increases the cost. However, I knew... I. That was my primary criterion, so I wanted that that one met image stabilization. Right. So um, when I, go ahead, I, I started looking around and I noted that uh, as as I saw the specs for these image stabilized binoculars, they had a somewhat smaller field of view than than even my um, our first pair, which I thought was too small. But that was something I thought I would just have to live with unless, unless I was going to pay well over $1,000, and I wasn't prepared to do that for a much larger field of view. Right. 
Right. Now, now the ones you uh, did find, aren't they aren't light by any means. They're not as, as light or as small as the compact qualides that we originally had, but uh, they're about 30% lighter than the $45 ones that didn't have image stabilization. So, so that's not bad. Right. And most of all, they were super compact. And um, that combined with the fairly lightweight feature, I sold me. Uh, they also had a little higher magnification, 12 instead of power of 10. And uh, all of the reviews showed very good image stabilization, good enough to view objects from a, a moving, rocking ship. So that's part of the reason I got this pair. So field of view uh, is affected by the fact that it is image stabilized, though, right? Can you talk to that? Yeah, so the way uh, image stabilization works is there is a total field of view that the optics can support, which in general is for image stabilization is larger. And then within that, a smaller actual uh, actual image stabilized field of view is moved around within the larger area very quickly to accommodate the motions that, that you're putting the, uh, the binoculars through. So you will, by definition, get a somewhat smaller field of view than the optics can literally support, but it's stabilized. To those people who've uh, used the uh, video tracking feature in FaceTime on an iPad, for example, uh, what do they call it? Center stage, where no yeah. matter where you move, it's always it's always got you in, fo in the image. The way they're doing that is the exact same technology, right? They've got, they're capturing a much bigger field of view, but only showing you a smaller field of view that is is keeping you in the, motion, in the uh, middle of the screen. So right. it's essentially the right. same thing, I think. Yeah, it is. And, and I was a little concerned about that smaller field of view, but I found that since their image stabilized, it was much easier to keep the desired object I was viewing in the center. And I didn't need as much uh, area field of view as I would with non-image stabilized binoculars. With the non-image stabilized, it seems almost like what you're having to do is stabilize with your own eyeballs, right? You're trying right. to just look at what's in the middle and not moving. Yeah, and it's a lot of work and, and effort to do that for long periods of time, and it's not as enjoyable to to see objects that are bouncing around in in the image. Right, right. So but now these... with your Fujinon Techno Stabies, um, you didn't meet your five hundred dollar budget, did you? No, not quite. I had to go up to six fifty, six hundred fifty dollars on on Amazon, and that seemed to be the going rate just about everywhere I went. But I'm I'm pretty glad I, I spent I went a little over my budget because the image stabilization for these binoculars was very good, and, that, and that's kind of needed when you go you know higher than 10, 12, factor of twelve is um, you know you're starting to magnify quite a bit, and yeah. I was uh, I was fine with giving up a little of the field of view. One thing I found annoying with some pairs of binoculars is that it's difficult to focus. Uh, the binoculars, is, and binoculars tend to be something where you look at something, you go, oh my gosh, look at this, and you want to hand them to somebody. So they mm -hmm. need to be easy to focus for the next person and also for you to be able to change focus. Uh, right. In my experience, these are pretty good, right? Yeah, the focusing mechanism was very smooth. It was precise. It had a nice feel to it, so easy to hand to someone else and have them focus for their eye didn't have a lot of hi any hysteresis to speak of or anything None at like all. that. Yeah, yeah, very, very solid. Um, the pivoting of the lenses inward and outward to match your inner ocular eye distance, um, you know, and everyone has, you know, has some, some different distance mm -hmm. typically. That was a little bit stiff. 
So I'm that's hoping probably... that works out after a while. Like if we just played with it for a while, maybe it would loosen up. But yeah, it is pretty stiff. You sometimes when you go to open them, only one will pivot out, and you yeah. gotta, kind of got to fuss with it to get the second one out. But it, it didn't really bother me. Yeah, it's still doable. You just have to put a little more muscle into it. Um, <laughs> and I'd say that that's okay. I'm not doing it that often until I hand it over to you. <laughs> you hand it over to me. Right. Uh, luckily I, I'm not finding we have to do, I had to do a lot on the focusing and, and that was like we said, it was, uh, it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, so let's see the image stabilization requires power. So how's that right. handled? Yeah. So it does require a battery, one battery. It's a CR2 format, which is a little odd, short stubby battery, maybe a little wider or, or thicker than a double A, but maybe half the height. Um, and that battery supports it. It's advertised to support 12 hours of continuous use. I'm not sure we got quite that. I did leave it on for a while. And uh, it, although it has an auto off feature, if, if you're not using the binoculars every 10 minutes, I think I may have left them on while I was moving around. So they stayed I'm on. Shocked. For- you left something on? <laughs> Yeah. Now I we we got more than a day's use out of it. Um, you know, multiple maybe two or three days, but we were using them infrequently during those days. You know, a hike here, a hike there. So I, I, it wasn't as if that became a problem. It's just I don't think I got twelve hours of my continuous use. Maybe twelve <laughs> hours of on period. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I won't keep throwing you under the bus over how many yeah. things you leave turned on. We'll, we'll, okay. just, we'll just move along for that. Yeah. Um, so let's see another, or let's back up a little bit before the, uh, we got into what happened with the battery. Um, there was a, um, uh, a point where we were first using them and we both noticed that you, you have to hold these away from your eyes. Like if you sested, uh, settled them against your eye sockets, they, they weren't, you ended up seeing like the edges and the inside and you kind of yeah, had to pull them away from your eyes. They were too close. Right. And normally, well, some binoculars um, actually I'll let you adjust that distance, and I didn't realize it, but uh, I was handing them, I think I handed them to you, and you noticed that if you just rotated each lens, uh, you know, eye eyepiece, those came in and out. They threaded in and out. A lot, too. It was like it yeah. was like a half an inch. And as At soon least. as I did that, we both went, oh, that's how these are supposed yeah. to work. And that, that was very nice once we got, I just... I just thread them all the way out, and that's about the right distance for focusing uh, from my eyes to the actual lens. Yeah, it feels like that's what you're supposed to do. It, you probably could stop partway, but it feels like you're. It's just sort of like a clocking, like you just go and it pops yeah, out. Yeah, I think they have that adjustable for people who wear glasses and don't need to go as far out. Oh, right, that's a and good so you point. can rest them on your glasses and not have to, you know, and not have to bring them all the way out. There you go. Okay, well that makes sense. So, uh, how about when you actually started using these in Iceland? Did you like them? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely liked them. Let me just point out one more spec item, which I I did take a little hit on, but it didn't it didn't become a problem. And that is the IPX rating, which indicates how weatherproof they are. These are only rated IPX two, which is virtually nothing. So they're not good at all for water, sand, dust, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I knew that buying them, but I just 
I just decided we're not going to use these in the rain or in uh, you know sandstorms. And we got lucky that uh, it basically didn't rain on us in in Iceland, except when we were in Reykjavik. But the rest of the time we were on the ship, it was it was uh, it was pretty clear. Right, right. So that worked out fine. In Iceland, man, they they work like a charm. Um, all the images I could get real crisp, clear images, easily focused, fairly quickly focused. The, the big seller was the image stabilization. That worked extremely well. Uh, even long periods were, were on the rocking boat, or there was a point where we're viewing puffins in the distance on the rocky cliffs. And uh, I could zoom right up and see their beaks and their face, facial features, and even the little fish dangling from their well, beaks. Well, actually, oh, you just spoiled the story. So, oh, so they sorry. looked like they had <laughs> beards on them, some of them, and we thought those were males. And then you grabbed the binoculars and looked at them and said, no, there's a whole bunch of herring that yeah. they had, like strings of them in their mouth, like five or six hanging out yeah. of either side of the mouth. It was very strange. We still don't know how they picked up that those many herrings. Right. That it's an herrings? odd look. Uh, when they moved back and forth, the, the little herring would flop back and forth. And I kind of, that's when I thought maybe it was a beard or some... <laughs> facial thing, but uh, it, it was definitely fish. You could see the heads and the tails of some of them. That's that's how crisp the images were. And it, I, like you say, how did they do that? Did they scoop all of them up in a row and what in one, one at action? a time and hold on to the other ones with their yeah, tongue? How do you, <laughs> or how do you get them individually? How do you get a new one without losing the first one? <laughs> I don't know how they scoop them up like that. I brought anyway, my big cool. girl camera on the trip, and uh, I got a really good close-up. Uh, I did not have the zoom level that you did. I had about uh, uh, 300x, and you're going to talk about that a little bit later. But I, I do have a picture of the puffin uh, with the uh, with the fish in the mouth. So we'll put that in the show notes so people can see what we're talking about. Yeah. So other things that we saw with these binoculars, there was a, a, a house in the distance on top of a lava formation. They're sticking out of the ocean somewhat close to an island, a mile or two away from an island we were sailing to, but still kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And we were wondering how to even build a house up there. So we, we zoomed in with the binoculars. You could see the details of the house. You could see a crane that was at the edge of a cliff. I'm talking 300 foot tall cliff of this and just coming out of you know vertical cliff at the top of a grassy knoll where this house is perched. I don't know how they got up there. Uh, but maybe there was a lot of stuff like that where we're like, what, what, what made you think it was a good idea to put your house there in the first place? (laughs) Right. Probably one of the big, uh, wins with these binoculars was seeing the orcas that popped up around our ship while we were sailing from one port to another, um, Captain called out, orcas on the starboard side. Of course, they were on the port side. They were. Every single time, whatever they said, they were on the opposite side at the time. Actually, it wasn't the captain. It was the tour, um... Oh uh, yeah, coordinator. I forget his I name, but yeah, that may be the reason he didn't know port from starboard. I think the captain would know that. <laughs> yeah, one would hope, and and hopefully he was busy with something more important than telling us where the where right. the orcas were. But it was a whole pod of them. You you know, at times three of them or four of them would come up simultaneously, and then and then off the other side of the ship, another group would come up. It was like probably a half hour of this. Uh, going back and forth, looking for the, the best shot of the orcas. And you got a, a beautiful view, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and that one, um, you know, one of the things that y- you realize when you have these great views is, oh, if I could only have a photo of these views. I, I'm mm-hmm. seeing them real time, but I want to capture this. And I just did a quick calculation and for uh, magnification 12, 
you'd need a 600 millimeter lens on a camera to capture that same magnification. Oh my gosh. Uh, and we're not going to be carrying that around uh, anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, I was carrying a 300 millimeter equivalent lens with a micro four thirds. And so it's really 150 millimeter, but it, the way the multiplying with the sensor works, it's 300 millimeters. That a 600 millimeter lens would be massive. That would. Be oh, really I didn't big. do that conversion for you. It would have been a 300 millimeter for your camera then. Oh, it would have. Oh, okay. Yeah. But well, I'm right, but, but it would have been. Millimeter. It still would have been massive. It yeah. would have been really huge. Right. Now, back in 2019, we interviewed a company called Next Optic, uh, who had binoculars that take photos. And uh, I just pulled up the uh, a link to the video on it, and um, it had a 12 megapixel sensor, but the optical zoom was only 10x. And what what is the uh, zoom on yours? 12. 12. Okay. Well, yeah. it's getting close. So I don't know whether that company ended up uh, making those or not, but uh, maybe that's what you should have gotten so you could take pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I don't well, think they were image stabilized, though. One other thing I didn't mention is the uh, binoculars typically come in... Um, you know, A by B, A being the magnification, B being the diameter in millimeters of the uh, lens of the hmm. uh, of the field so, of view, or well, no, it's the actual it's the actual diameter in millimeters of the uh, uh, it's not the objective lens anyway, the the big lens. Okay, so these are twenty eight, twelve by twenty eight, twenty eight millimeter lens. The larger that uh, lens is, the the wider field of view, but the cost goes up dramatically with that number and the weight and the size. Okay. So that's why this, these are a little bit smaller. I did find some comparable, uh, you know, I looked around on Amazon, looked at the reviews, looked at comparable binoculars. Probably the closest I found was, a, was the Canon 12 by 36 image stabilized three binoculars, but those came in at about 750 and they were quite a bit heavier Mm. Um, so I opted for going lighter and cheaper and uh, no regrets. I I'm happy with what we came up, came away with. Great. Uh, oh, one other thing you got, you were able to watch, uh, when we were watching the puffin puffin are kind of a, a comical looking bird They're They look like a cartoon bird to me. They're very colorful. Yeah. They're really, they're really neat looking. And, uh, but they have kind of a tubby body and when they would fly, it just looked improbable that they could fly. <laughs> they were so funny looking. I spent most of my time trying to photograph them flying and I didn't get any good pictures. You actually got a pretty good one from your phone. Um, oh, but you, you were able to watch them with your, uh, with your binoculars. Yeah, I, I was. And I got some great views. Um, by the way, that that image I gave you wasn't from my phone. It was, I also brought my camcorder, which can zoom in fairly well with good zoom. And then I took a still from a video that I took with my camcorder. I must have put the wrong photo in because this was an HEIC file. So I think it, oh. it was from your phone, but... Uh, um, I could stand corrected here. Maybe. I yeah, but that, that does wrong. sound like you would have done that. Yeah. So we'll have to go back and confirm that. The, the other funny thing about puffins, you said they're tubby. That's certainly true. When they're flying, they, they don't look like they should be able to fly. But they also, I don't know if this happens when they're flying all the time or just when they're coming in for a landing, their legs stick out. Their little stubby <laughs> like, feet. Like side to side. They're, they're yeah. webbed feet and everything webbed to feet. the side. And they're not long. They're little stubby things. So they look. They just look like, uh, you know, would you say a flying bathtub? Or yeah, flying? yeah. They definitely look like a little flying or <laughs> flying little, tugboat. That's what I said. Yeah, tugboat. That's it. 
Now, we did have one weird experience. When you first took them out to uh, try to look at the orcas, all of a sudden you said something you were saying, oh, no, they're broken. Yeah, I got really concerned that we we banged them up or dinged them because I pulled them up. We. Look, well, I <laughs> pulled them up to look at the orcas. And the image was swaying back and forth, not not with my motion either. It was like wobbly at with some random slow wobble. And I said, what is going on? I checked the image stabilization switch. There's an on-off switch. They were on, but the image certainly wasn't stabilized. And then I realized um, there there is an LED light which comes on when image stabilization is on, and this was off. So I figured it must be the battery. Swapped out the battery, put the new one in, and... Sh- sure enough, locked in on the image stabilization. That's all it was. Okay. Okay. So I wonder if there would have been any better way for it to indicate to you that it was a dead battery. I guess not having the light on is your indicator. Yeah. And I wasn't used to that light, but I did remember it finally. It wasn't the first thing I looked at. Um, Maybe a a low battery warning, but they don't have any, any imagery, you know, projected in the display on the device or anything like that. Yeah. I think for cost, which is fine. Uh, I'll just know to look look for that green LED being on. Or, if, or if the, video, if the uh, image through it's all gloppy and loopy, right? <laughs> right. Then you know uh, something's not right here. It's bouncing around. It sounds like yeah. maybe it was real low power at that point. Well, the way, you know, as I go back to think about the way it was behaving, I think it uh, the optics were unlocked or the, we'll call it the stabilization oh. mirror. Okay, was so it unlocked was and it was loose and moving just under its free will, but it had some inertia, so it wasn't moving real quickly. Okay, uh, and then uh, so that thing is um, clearly without battery power. It's not gonna, it's not gonna move properly. <laughs> the battery, the battery is important to these. <laughs> All right, important. so overall, you'd say you're pretty happy with these. Very happy. I'd recommend them to anybody. The, the one exception would be uh, people who are going to find themselves in in wet or sandy dusty conditions Mm. if or if you're trying to track or follow something that's quickly moving across your field of view not if you're moving these things work great um including just shaky hands or a moving boat but if the object is moving and you have to having to scan quickly uh you might want a little wider field of view than these and examples might be say for uh our friends rick or jill bird watchers they, they, you might have a little more trouble tracking a bird flying across the field of view if with his narrow field of view. Yeah, the Arctic terns. Did you try to watch those? Those guys were fast. Yeah, I, um, I had limited success, <laughs> and I they tried, probably I, wouldn't be good for <laughs> bats. <laughs> right, right. I, I was fine looking at them when they came to the ground, but they have a really cool in-flight shape, and that was harder to catch. Yeah, yeah, it, but but the flying tugboat. Uh, <laughs> They were easier, (laughs) the tugboats. (laughs) No problem tracking them. All right. This is very cool. We will have uh, links in the show notes to the... to the Fujinon Techno Stabi binoculars on Amazon for $650. Anything else, Steve? I think that kind of wraps it up. It was a good trip, I will add. Well, I've been gallivanting around the world and doing little to no work for the podcast. Miraculously, we have not one, but two new Patreon subscribers. I want to give a huge shout out to Peter Seidel and F. Allen in C for their generous donations. These two fine folks went to podfeed.com slash Patreon and chose a dollar amount that shows the value they feel they get from all of the fine shows we do here at the Podfeed Podcast Network. 
You can be cool too like these folks and sign up at podfeet.com slash Patreon. Hi folks, Bart here with another solo security bits. Um, we had sort of kind of promised a great big tease about how we had a special guest lined up and, well, we did, but you may have noticed the world's a bit of an uncertain place at the moment and uh, uncertainty struck and uh, our special guest is deferred. Not cancelled, deferred. So uh, stay tuned for some mystery later date next time Alison goes uh, off on her many travels. Anyway. It will happen someday, it is not today, I'm sorry to say, after all that hype, it's just little old me, just yakking away to you. So let's get stuck into the security news. Um, feedback and follow-up first. If you are looking for a graphic illustration of why it is that we warned, we and everyone, warned about the dangers of basically having a womb in a post-Roe v. Wade being overturned America, then a recent court case illustrates the point rather well. So being a security segment, our fear was in terms of, you know, tech companies being forced to hand over information with subpoenas to end up incriminating people. And that has now happened. There was a prosecution in Texas where Facebook handed over private messages where a mother was talking to her young daughter, basically a teenage pregnancy needed an abortion, was in Texas, where it's not allowed, and the mother and daughter discussed it over Facebook using Messenger, and Facebook were subpoenaed for that information, and because, while Messenger is capable of doing end-to-end encryption, doesn't do it by default, so because of that fact, Facebook had the private message conversations, therefore were able to provide them to law enforcement, and that's how it works, right? If you are a corporation you must obey the law if the law says you thou must hand over whatever information thou hast well if you have the information you hand it over so that, that to some extent that's the big takeaway here is that you need to make sure the companies don't have the information because if they do have it they can be subpoenaed and there's also a link in the show notes to some advice from cult of mac on how to protect your privacy in a post roe v wade world that may unfortunately be necessary for some of our listeners to read. Another story we've talked about a lot is AirTags. Um, so two important stories cross my radar, so I'm calling them timely reminders in the show notes. So Apple explicitly advised that their AirTags are for the purpose of recovering lost items. Right? If you read Apple's descriptions, they only ever talk about it being a way of finding lost items. They never, ever, ever, ever advertise the product as being about tracking stolen items. The big reason for that is that they literally make noise to draw attention to themselves, which is their anti-stalking feature. So they would be terrible at being a theft detector. And of course, anything that is a good theft tracker is also a good stalking device. By definition, right? If you're trying to keep yourself secret from someone who stole you, then you are also keeping yourself secret from someone who you're improperly tracking to stalk them. There is no difference in a device for stalking and a device for theft tracking. So Apple don't make a device for theft tracking. They make a device for lost, for finding lost items. Now, as it happens, a lot of the time, stolen items with an AirTag can still send back the location before the attacker has discovered the device. 
And so it has definitely helped people dealing with stolen items. But that's a side effect, that's a bonus, that's not what it's for. And if you have an air tag on something that gets stolen, do not, under any circumstances, play the vigilante and go track them down yourself because you could get badly hurt or worse. To underline this point, I give you a headline from Apple Insider. Robbery victim tracks thief with air tag gets broken nose. Right, you go after criminals, they may well literally punch you in the face. Or shoot you, frankly, if you're in America. So, and not just in America. They're criminals. Don't go near criminals. They're dangerous. Um, the other thing is, don't ignore air tag warnings. But also note the fact that they do actually work. So, another story that crossed my mind is a man... I'll give you the headline from Apple Insider. Man jailed for stalking ex-girlfriend with air tag. Why is the man in jail? Because Apple safeguards work. Why am I saying don't ignore AirTag warnings? Well, unfortunately, the man wasn't in jail quickly enough because his victim was getting these warnings and was ignoring them until it became clear that her ex-partner knew things he shouldn't be able to know. And then those warnings were actually taken seriously. And then, you know, law enforcement involved, guy arrested, guy jailed. So... Apple's technological protections are proving effective in the real world, right? The amount of scary headlines about AirTag, 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 read the story and notice how often it says, and a warning was popped up, and then I contacted the police, and, you know, happy ending's the wrong word. Uh, You know, things ended appropriately. Um, So Apple's protections are working well. That's why they're in the news. But also, don't ignore the warnings. They could be real. They probably are real. Uh... Just another follow-up on a long-running story. We know a little bit more about the Pegasus spyware from the NSO group. And some more reporting has found screenshots of the version of the product that was being sold to the Israeli police. This tells us that the Israeli police would have been able to use the app to read people's WhatsApp messages, to activate the phone's microphone, and to record incoming and outgoing calls. Yeah, spying. That's what spying looks like. We've also talked a few times about some very misguided um, attempts to block app tracking transparency in the name of uh, antitrust. Three large French publishers have joined the chorus of the ridiculous, in my opinion, uh, suing Apple on anti-competitive grounds for app tracking transparency. Basically, the logic being our business model was based on spying on people without their permission. We were making good money at it. Now we can't. Therefore, anti-competitive. Therefore, you're evil. No, your business model is broken. But hey, what do I know? Uh, We also know that Apple had said that they would be removing abandonware apps from their app store. Well, we now have some reporting that shows they certainly followed through on that. Uh, Some latest numbers on the various app stores show that Apple pulled 439,000 apps in Q2. So yeah, they did indeed pull that abandonware. Finally, we've also talked a lot recently about supply chain attacks in software, basically attacking the libraries that developers use in their products. And there's been another case of it, um, but basically someone went into GitHub and maliciousified, basically created clones of a whole bunch of popular repos, gave them confusing names and then filled them with malware. But uh, the problem was very quickly noticed and very quickly fixed by Microsoft uh, slash GitHub. So I think that's kind of the important takeaway. Yes, these software supply chain attacks are real, but if you stick with the big players, their record has been extremely 
extremely good on this when npm or github or these kind of places when problems are found they are dealt with as if they, you know they're basically they're treated with the appropriate level of uh, seriousness and that's not always true in the world of security news so so far so good now, I actually have two deep dives for you, and I'm starting with the not good news deep dive, and then I'm going to the, let's not the good nor bad news, the, new, the, the educational and interesting deep dive, maybe. Deep dive one, malware in the Mac App Store, and there's no fire extinguisher icon here, because this is a real story. Now, keep it in perspective, you probably still shouldn't set your actual hair on fire, but this is not a nothing burger, there is a something here, but the world isn't ending either. Nuance, important. Anyway, news broke that threat actors have managed to sneak malware into the Mac. Again, this is Mac, not iOS. So the Mac App Store, which is using a kind of a time bomb feature where the apps start off as benign, they go through Apple's review, and then they change their behavior to become malicious. Now, all of these apps offered real functionality, or they never made it through review, but then they morph into something that is real functionality plus something nasty. Now, it's not I'm not fully clear on exactly how they're pulling this off, but the various things I've read imply that the apps are actually completely transforming themselves after passing initial app review. Now, Apple are going to have to change something to nip this in the bud. Anyway, the most high-profile example of this was an app for managing Facebook ad buys, which was actually coming up as the top result in the Mac App Store for Facebook ads. And if you use this to log into your Facebook account, your Facebook account will be hijacked. The attackers will then use your credit to sell their ads. So basically, you would end up paying, you know, the victims end up paying for the attacker's ads. Now, Apple said that the, the app was originally a document manager. And yet, it was in the Mac App Store explicitly as a Facebook ad manager. And it was, in fact, the top-rated result for Facebook ads. So that means that not only did the app change what it does, the app's listing in the apps are also changed. So that means that they must have used the, the app update process to sneak a malicious update up. And whatever way the review is working at the moment, it would seem that certain types of updates do not actually go by a human being. Because any human being would have immediately noticed that this app completely, totally unheard transformed itself from a document manager to a Facebook ad buying platform. And that should have triggered proper, deep, in-depth review. So something has gone wrong in Apple's review process. And it's not just this one app. So security researcher Alex Kleber reported seven apps that use different Mac App Store accounts but appear to come from the same Chinese developer. Now, these apps were all offering legitimate functionality. Reading through the titles, it was mostly to do with PDF and Word docs. Uh, but once you install them, they, again, after app review, they morphed to include, they didn't completely change the functionality in this case, but they morphed to include sort of command and control style functionality where the attacker could send extra functionality to the app. And they were not good bonus extras. Um, the app basically tricked people into paying for expensive subscriptions was how they chose to monetize those seven apps. So, not good. There is clearly a problem in Apple's review process, and bad guys are actively using whatever the heck loophole they found. So Apple needs to figure out how they're getting by their system, and they need to fix their system. Now, I think probably the most worrying bit of this story is that Facebook say they told Apple about the malicious ad manager in mid-July, but Apple didn't actually do anything until Business Insider looked 
came to them this week looking for comment on the story they were about to publish about all of this. So that's not appropriate. Um, But anyway, assuming Apple managed to tweak their process, this should all be grand again. And the other thing is, we need to put this into context. This is eight apps. So yes, Apple's walled garden is not perfect, but it's a heck of a lot safer than the internet. You know, the general internet is way, way, way more dangerous. You can't list the number of malicious apps that are known about, that are out there on the internet. But there's eight known problem apps in the Mac App Store. So, you know, not good, not a happy story, but the App Store is still better than anything else we have, and the sky is not falling, right? Okay, deep dive number the second is, uh, basically it's about an important protocol that I don't think I've talked about yet on this series, and now is a really good opportunity because it's been updated from version 1 to version 2. So it's called the Traffic Light Protocol, or TLP. So if you work in IT in an organisation, and that organisation has relationships with other organisations, in other words, any organisation ever, because none of, no organisations in Ireland, right? if you work in the real world in IT, there are going to be times when sensitive information needs to be shared about some kind of cybersecurity risk or incident. And in these kind of situations, it's really important that everyone who gets that email knows how secret is this? How should I treat this? Can I tell my manager about this? Can I tell my customer about this? Can I tell my colleague at another company about this? Can I post about this in a Slack channel for, you know, Linux sysadmin nerds or something? How widely can I share this? Can I blog about it? Can I post it on Twitter? How secret is this? And every company could, every organization could roll their own. But remember, we're talking here about the fact that in reality, these communications very, 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 very often cross organizations. So you could put a footer at the bottom of every email describing in great detail exactly how the email should be treated, but you know for a fact that human beings are not going to do that. So what you actually need is a really clear, simple and obvious system that everyone agrees on. Um, believe it or not, we actually have one. It, uh, like I say, it's called the TLP, the Traffic Light Protocol, and it was developed by FIRST, which is the Forum of Incidents... Re- Sorry, let me say that again. The Forum of Incident Response and Security Teams. And they based the initial version of the protocol on a traffic light. Red, green, orange. Or is it orange or amber they use? Ooh, sugar. Um, anyway, one of those colours. I uh, may have to update the show notes, depending on whether or not I'm supposed to be saying orange or amber. Oh, my silly European of me. Um, anyway, it's so version one of the protocol, technically speaking, was already cheating a bit. It didn't actually have three colours. It had four. And version, five, uh, version two of the protocol actually has five colours. Uh, let me see. What, sorry, I'm just reading the spec here. This makes great radio as I read. Come on, give me the listing. Oh, it's amber. I'm going to have to update all my show notes to say amber instead of orange. Amber, amber, amber. Remember, these are probably Americans. Okay. So, four colours, three colours like a traffic light, but actually, even from day one, were four colours. White was added to the main. But anyway, there's no point in me telling you about what the standard was. Let me tell you what the standard is. So, as of today, there are five levels that you need to be aware of. So, 
the first okay so the first thing to say is that you're going to know that the traffic light protocol is in play when the email subject is prefixed with tlp followed by a color so if you ever see emails you'll see them from us cert in those kind of places you know tlp colon clear and then they'll tell you something or tlp colon green or tlp colon amber etc okay so the five levels that exist in version two of the protocol the first one is tlp clear which is really stretching the definition of color, but okay. In version one, clear was white, but now it's been renamed as clear. This means that you can freely share the information. And when I say freely, I mean completely freely. You can share it within the IT community. You can share it with the world. You can write about it on your website. You can post it on Twitter. You can share it anywhere. The TLP clear basically means no TLP. The next level then, which a lot of people confuse with TLP clear, and indeed in the past with TLP white, TLP green does not mean you can share it with the world. It means you can share it freely within the cybersecurity community. But you may not publish TLP green on Twitter or your blog or your website, right? It stays within the IT world. It doesn't go to the general public. That's TLP green. The next level then is TLP amber. And that means that you can share within your organization and the definition of your organization is broad, right? Depending on what kind of an organization it is, you may be a vendor to other people, so you have customers, or you may have vendors, in which case you have vendors, or you may indeed contract parts of your work out, in which case you have contractors. With regular TLP Amber, you can share that information with your contractors, vendors, customers, right? So it's basically your organization very broadly defined. Now, what was added because TLP Amber was actually causing a lot of confusion in version one of the protocol. Like, what is my organization? So to address that confusion, version two of the protocol has developed a new variant of Amber, Amber Strict. And Amber Strict means it can be shared within your organization and only your organization. No contractors, no vendors, no customers. Stays within your actual organization. And then the last one is TLP Red. If you're not explicitly listed, or if the other people you want to share this with are not explicitly listed as recipients, you may not share. Literally, if they're if you're not in the two field, can't be shared with them. That is TLP red. Only the explicit recipients. So clear, publish to the world, green, anyone else in IT, Amber, anyone in your organization broadly defined, Amber strict, anyone in your organization, and really just your organization. And TLP Red, if they're not in the two fields, they don't get the C. Okay, so like I say, it's actually kind of useful to know about the, the traffic light protocol if you are working in IT. Uh, it's just you know, a good thing to know. Moving on then to action alerts. Last Tuesday was Patch Tuesday. There are lots of important updates from Microsoft. The most dangerous patches, or sorry, the most dangerous vulnerabilities that were patched, is a better way to say that, affect self-hosted Microsoft Exchange servers. So if you were an organization that hosts their own exchange, really, really, really vital that that gets patched. For everyone else, it's just important that you patch your windows, etc., etc. Patrick Wardle, uh, a uh, long-time Mac researcher of great renown, has discovered and become quite cranky, actually, with Zoom. Been a while since we've been cranky at Zoom. Early in the pandemic, we were very cranky at Zoom quite a bit because they were really playing fast and loose with security, and it would appear.
appear they're um, slipping a bit because they got better. They got a lot better. Uh, but they spent literally months not doing anything about this problem. So their installer doesn't do permissions or didn't do permissions properly. So anytime it auto updated, that could be hijacked to basically become root on a Mac. And Patrick World told them and they did nothing for eight months. And then they finally did a sort of a kind of a patch that fixed that one specific way in which Patrick was uh, exploiting the bug, but didn't really fix the underlying problem properly. So he immediately found another workaround, uh, which as of this writing, they haven't patched yet, but it's really, really, really easy to patch. And Patrick Wardle is like, I'm fed up of waiting for these guys. They're just not being responsive. So I'm going to publish it. And since I know that this is trivial to fix, they'd better get their skates on. So make sure your Zoom is patched and keep making sure it's patched because there had bloody well better be an update pretty darn soon. Moving on then to worthy warnings. Uh, Security researchers are warning about something that, in hindsight, we should have all been aware of. It is common, common, anyway, it happens that apps embed their own browser. Now, why would they do this? Well, one reason is for convenience, right? It is really convenient to me that my paid-for commercial RSS reader of choice, uh, reader with two E's, three E's if you do one the one on the end, um, it has a built-in browser and it's really convenient. But I'm the customer. They're not a company based off spying, so I just get convenience. But what if a company whose business model is built on spying gives you a built-in browser? Are they doing that to make your life convenient? Well, probably. But do they have an ulterior motive? Probably. So if you use Safari, there are all sorts of protections in place so that it's really hard to spy on where you go on the internet. But if you're inside a Facebook app or an Instagram app or whatever, and they're running a browser view, so it's basically a web view inside their app, you're not in Safari, you're in their app. They can watch everything you do anywhere on the internet that you go in that web view. In other words, there is no privacy on anything you do in one of those embedded browsers. They can track you cross-site completely. You haven't left their app. Their app can see what you're doing in their app. You're in their app. So think twice about using embedded browsers in apps that make their money by invading privacy. Uh, There was also a whole batter of emails from Slack saying that you need to reset your password. I'm sorry to say they are real. Um, There was a wee bit of a bug and a bunch of headers contained hashed passwords for the last five years. Now, they're hashed. That's good. In fact, they're hashed and salted, so it's very good. But they really shouldn't have been leaking them. Uh, So this is, in fact, I think about 2% of their users. So if you got the email, do what it says. It's real, unfortunately. Now, because they're hashed and sold, this is not a ooga, ooga, catastrophic end of the world. But if you got the email from Slack telling you that your account was involved in this, it happened, it's real, change your password. And then the last thing, I just want to draw your attention to a new technique that's been spotted in the wild. So Apple have been enabling um, activation lock on their phones for ages, which is a really effective way of making iPhones much, 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 much less of a target for thieves than they would be otherwise, right? They're small devices that cost a lot of money. That makes them thief catnip, I guess. But 
If you steal an iPhone, it's really hard to turn that into money because of activation lock. So there's a lot of motivation for thieves to find workarounds for activation lock. And basically that involves tricking you into either removing the activation lock yourself or handing over your iCloud credentials. So phishing for iCloud credentials is one way that attackers have been doing this. Uh, Well, now Apple Insider are reporting real-world cases of a different technique. They basically say, yeah, we found your phone, but we can't return it to you until you remove this lock from it. Of course, once you remove the lock, the phone is not activation locked. You will never see the phone again and the phone will then be sold. So no matter what highfalutin story you're told, do not ever remove activation lock from a stolen phone. It will not get the phone back to you. No one needs you to unlock it to give the phone back to you if they actually want to help you. So until you have the phone in your hand, it stays Right, moving on to notable news. Uh, I think we talked recently about the fact that NIST are quite far along in a many, many, many year process to to develop new cryptographic standards for a post-quantum computing world. At the moment, quantum computers are pretty much useless. They're a security, they're not, the computer scientist's toy. They're an area of very active research. There's some amazing science happening, but they're not practical computing devices. They're near being practical computing devices. But they will be, and when they are, that really changes the landscape for encryption because our current encryption rests on some assumptions that don't hold up in a world of quantum computing. Non-quantum computers find it really hard to do some things that quantum computers can do without much effort. They can basically do in their stride, factoring numbers being a big example. So any crypto based on factorization is really, really vulnerable in the post-quantum world. So now's the time to develop new algorithms, not when quantum computers actually become useful. So NIST started, the the, the National Institute of Standards in the US, uh, started a process quite a few years ago now to try basically to ask the community to propose potential uh, algorithms and to test them in the public view and then to move towards a standard. So they've been, you know, whittling the list down, whittling the list down, whittling the list down. And we're actually getting quite close to the end of the process, and we had whittled it down quite significantly a few weeks ago. And one of the remaining algorithms has now been beaten, been broken. There was a flaw in the underlying conceptual mathematics, and that has been found. So on the one hand, you're going to hear stories about, oh my God, the you know the NIST shortlisted algorithm has been broken, auga, auga. I was like, well, no, the process was designed so that would hopefully find these problems before the standard was finalised. Well, the standard isn't finalised, and the problem has been found. So the system's working. This is exactly why this is such a public process. So this is actually a good news story, basically what I'm saying. But you may have heard it spun as a bad news story. What is unfortunately definitely a bad news story, but the silver lining is not likely to affect Nocillacast listeners. Um, A new... Fancy name bug has been found in Intel's CPUs. It's called Epic, spelled with the AE, the special character that's an A and E together, which is actually a real typographic character that's been around for centuries. But basically, the problem there's an Epic problem in the APIC, uh, and the APIC is part of the chip, and Epic is obviously big. So that's why it's AE PIC. Um, and there's something called self-regard extensions, SGX, in high-end Intel CPUs in red corporations. And this allows sort of a 
a firmware simulated secure enclave is the best way to describe it. So in theory, if SGX is working as intended, an app can mark a piece of memory as to the CPU and basically say, see this piece of memory here, treat that as if it's a secure enclave and don't let anyone don't let anyone read that memory. Apart from this one piece of code I'm going to give you now that you're going to put into that safe piece of memory. And then that code and only that code can read the memory. The only thing anyone else can do is put input and output to that code. So this is how a secure enclave works, right? You can't read the contents of a secure enclave. You can only send it messages and get answers. And so the idea is that you would put the algorithm you want and the key to be protected into a piece of memory, mark it with SGX, and then the only way to access that memory is through the code you've put in with the data. And so even root can't see the data. That's how you protect private keys. This is a clever idea, but of course, it's a simulation of the hardware protections in an actual secure enclave. And unfortunately, Intel made a bit of a whoopsie. And one of their other features in the CPU accidentally leaks the content of random bits of memory. So you can get by SGX. Oopsie. Now, SGX is a feature that is really only used in corporate environments. And even then, not in all corporate environments. So regular home users don't need to panic about this. And if you work in corporate IT, you'll know whether or not you need to panic and buy your system in a coffee. But regular and silicon castaways, I don't think the sky is falling. You should be grand. Other notable news then, um, there has been a controversy uh, over Android, which had a setting which looked for all the world like a single toggle to turn off data tracking, only it didn't actually do that. There was actually other settings really, really far hidden. It was really, really, really hard. And we actually know that they used A-B testing to make it as hard as possible to turn off location tracking. It was full of dark patterns. It was basically evil. Well, the Australians didn't like that. And uh, Google had now been fined $40 million because they did this. So yay. Meanwhile, in the United States, I have two stories, and I basically put the hmm story first and the happier story last. So the hmm story is that Google sent a proposal to the US Federal Election Commission, the FEC, suggesting that uh, they provide a system whereby registered political campaigns and political action committees and stuff can sign up to a program with Google. And if you remember that program, your emails get to bypass the Gmail spam filter and be delivered to people's inbox anyway. It won't bypass the malware filter, but it will bypass the spam filter. And it was opened up to public comment and the public were like, no, if if political people can't write their mail so that it's meaningful enough to bypass spam, why the heck should they get a free pass and get into all of our inboxes? And the FEC went and approved it anyway. So it's going to happen. Um, I believe that if you opt out of receiving the mail from a specific campaign, then you it will be proactively filtered away from you forever, regardless of whether or not it's seen as spam. So there's a slight silver lining there. But this possibly could mean that a lot of US citizens get a lot more election-y spam in the coming months as the midterm elections approach. So some people are seeing this as a good news story because if you say no, then it should in theory all go away from that particular campaign. But there's a free pass being given. Anyway, complicated. Make up your own mind. Meanwhile, the Federal Trade Commission in the US have said that they are starting the process 
of exploring new regulations to protect data privacy and corp- and to protect data privacy and protect you from corporate surveillance. So they're fixing to make a plan to deal with the whole privacy problem in the US. Long, 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 long way from, you know, good news. But if you're going to chop a giant big pile of wood, you need to start by chopping the first piece of wood. If you're going to get to the point where you have proper regulation, you need to start by figuring out what proper regulation looks like. So this is a good news story. It's just a hell of a long way from this being a finished story. We have no top tips. We have no excellent explainers. But I do have some interesting insights I would like to draw your attention to. So first off, uh, CISA in the US have released their report on the top malware strains of 2021. So if you're curious about what there is out there in the real world causing actual problems, you can see the list. And what I found particularly good news is that if you read through the list and they tell you, you know, what you should be doing to protect yourself, basically patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Like the the things we know we should be doing are the things that are effective against the top strains of malware. So basically doing 90% of the work protects you against, sorry, doing 80% of the work protects you against 90% of the malware is basically how this works out. You know, the low hanging fruit really does provide a lot of protection from a lot of malware. So do the basics you will be rewarded. Uh, Another controversy that is definitely going to be a big thing in the Apple community at the moment is the question about app tracking transparency. It is getting blamed for pretty much everything bad happening in the IT world. And there's a pandemic going on. There's, you know, is the US economy in recession? Maybe sort of, kind of. Like, there's a lot of economic headwinds and stuff, but everyone's basically saying, all the problems in the internet are all because of out-tracking transparency. And it's probably not true. And there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of hot air being blown on this topic. If you would like a nuanced, detailed analysis of the, the very simple question, exactly how much effect has out-tracking transparency had? then I recommend an article over on Pixel Envy, which goes into that in great detail. Now, I haven't even fully finished reading the article. It's long and it's detailed. But the bottom line is, ATT has definitely not had, has definitely had some effect, right? It's not a case that ATT did nothing to affect financials. But it's also being used as a scapegoat. So reality is actually somewhere on the spectrum between everything is ATT's fault and nothing is ATT's fault. Neither of those two extremes are even vaguely realistic or sensible. It's somewhere in between, probably towards the actually ATT isn't the root cause of these problems, end of the spectrum. But as I say, I'm not fully finished reading the article. It's long, it's detailed, but it is fascinating. So link in the show notes if you would like to have a read yourself. Something else that caught my eye, I mean, it's an opinion piece as much as anything else, but... um, Amazon have made another purchase which has privacy implications. So uh, when Amazon bought Ring, that set off a lot of alarm bells. No pun intended. And Amazon are now bought iRobot for the company behind the Roomba. And again, this gives Amazon a lot of information about your home. And Amazon's a company that thrives off information. So there are definitely privacy questions to be asked here about Amazon getting this extra stream of information about it. A lot of people's, you know, most intimate space, their home. So if you're curious, the link in the show notes to an article from Apple Insider that addresses these questions. Not so much news, it really is opinion. But like I say, it's an interesting insight. So link in show notes. Now, the next link I have is under just because it's cool, because I think a lot of 
and this little castaways will enjoy reading this, but it's not really a palate cleanser, right? How an iPhone battery works and how to manage its health is not palate cleanser, but it is cool and useful information. So link in the show notes. Again, an Apple Insider article. Recently, I've recently subscribed to Apple Insider to replace my subscription with iMore because iMore went to absolute poop. Uh, so Apple Insider has taken iMore's place in my uh, RSS reader and a lot of really good content there. So yay, Apple Insider, boo, iMore. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let us end with an actual genuine palate cleanser. Very nerdy. Shout out to Alistair here. Um, Alistair, this is not news to you. But it's a really fun video. It's not news to me either, frankly. Right? I knew exactly how runway digits work, right? Uh, because as a kid, I was always fascinated by the fact that uh, in Dublin, you'd be looking out the window and you would see runway one zero, ten. And I'm thinking to myself, there are not ten runways in Dublin. So if that's runway ten that I've just taxied past, where the heck are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine? The answer is they don't exist. Why is it called ten? It's actually a really, really, really sensible and logical reason. And what may slightly blow your mind is that the same piece of tarmac has two names, depending on whether you're flying from one side or from the other. The same physical runway is two logical runways, two different names, where the names are, in fact, numbers. Anyway, CGP Grey explains it all wonderfully. It is the simple secret of runway digits. Link in the show notes. All right, folks, I'm going to draw a line under my third solo security bits. I very much am looking to having an Allison back to talk about security next time. But until then, remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, Bart recorded this episode of Security Bits on Sunday, and on Monday morning, he asked me to add a PS to his report. In this recording, he told you about an exploit for Zoom that was out in the wild. And now, according to Apple Insider, Zoom have already provided a patch for the exploit. So as Bart would say, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Did you know you can email me anytime you like at allison at podfee.com. And there's a really good chance that I'll answer you. If you have questions or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. And if you want to join in the fun of the conversation, remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. So you can join our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack, where you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways like Jill and Bart and Steve and everybody's in there. It's a great time. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to podfeet.com slash Patreon to give a monthly donation, or you can give us a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, which will be back on August 21st, this coming Sunday, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.